We're in Numbers 14 this week. Before we do that, just a quick announcement. Um, So now, I, I mentioned this before, but now this ministry, Disciple Dojo, my ministry, is now fully nonprofit. So that means that you are free to, if you want to support it, you get a kickback from the government. Not really a kickback, but you get some credit. Uh, so there's a little more incentive if you ever want to. Uh, I have a way, I'm going to have this here every week, if you want to donate to this ministry. The, the biblical teaching, the outreach to the refugee community that I do on North Charlotte, the classes, the resources, keeping those free, this podcast, video, all that kind of stuff. If you like it and you want to donate... I'm going to always have my iPad. I'll put it on that table. You can come by and do it with a credit card through PayPal. uh, Or you can talk to me about if you'd like to become a monthly supporter because we're looking to increase that as well as we try to move this ministry to the next level. And so I really appreciate that. But anyway, there's no pressure. I'm going to still keep doing this. Um, But those of you, some of you do like to support and some of you have asked how you can support. And so that's just an easy way to do it. And you don't even need any cash or anything, and you'll get a tax credit at the end of the year, get a receipt of all your giving and everything, because we are official. So that's the good news. Now, give me money. No, I'm just kidding. Um, let's get into numbers. Chapter, uh, start in chapter 11. Israel set out to the promised land in chapter 10. The, the culmination, the, the climax of the book, supposedly. Everything was going great. They set out as a mighty army. Then in chapter 11, they started, the, the outliers among them started grumbling, murmuring, complaining, rebelling against Moses and Aaron. And God gave them a little slap with some fire from heaven, which would have brought to mind the fire that had been guiding them, the fire that guarded them from Pharaoh's chariots as they crossed the Red Sea at night. Uh, the fire that came down from the altar and consumed Aaron's firstborn sons, the high priests of Israel, when they dared to rebel and disobey God's commandments of how they should serve the people in Leviticus. So the people have seen this fire before and God shot a warning shot across the bow with the fire that burned the outskirts of the camp, the unclean area where all of the refuse and stuff would be uh, discarded. And then the next chapter the rebellion moved inward. So Aaron, I mean Moses and Aaron were opposed by uh, Miriam. Excuse me, Moses was opposed by Miriam and Aaron. And it was the, we talked about it, it was on account of Moses had married a Cushite, married an Ethiopian, married a dark-skinned wife that Miriam and Aaron weren't happy with, or at least Miriam wasn't happy with. And so they used that as the pretense for challenging the authority of Moses. And immediately, God steps in and vindicates Moses in the sight of Aaron and Miriam with an ironic yet fitting punishment for Miriam. And you can read about that in chapter 12. Then in chapter 13, the people are sent out. They, they get leaders and are sent spies from among them to go spy out the land of Canaan to, to kind of do some reconnaissance. This is where we're headed. Go into the land, go up and down it. Forty days, the spies went. They searched it out. They surveyed the land. They saw that the land was everything God had promised. It was good. It was fertile. They brought back grapes and other fruit that were just in abundance. And coming back, they said, yeah, it's everything God said, but... There are strong people there and strong cities, fortifications, and there's no way we can overcome them. 
of those spies, of the twelve, only two of them said, no, we can do it. And that was Joshua and Caleb. We saw last week, Caleb, what does Caleb's name mean? Dog. Yeah, it's a euphemism for Gentile. And it's fitting because Caleb was a Gentile. His father, uh, Jephunneh, or Yephunneh, was a Kenizzite from one of the non-Israelite tribes that joined with Israel coming out of Egypt. So this Gentile dog, Caleb, was the one who stood up, hushed the people, shushed them, and said, we can do this. We can absolutely do this. It's just what God said. Let's go. But the people said, no, we can't do this. They're, they're big, scary boogeymen there. They're giants there. They exaggerated. They lied. They made stuff up. There are no Nephilim there. Nephilim were all killed off in the flood. There were no giants in the land. They, they were mighty warriors in the land. Sure, they were formidable opponents, but God had already said, I'm sending you as my judgment on those people, on those inhabitants of the land, on those violent, scary Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites. You're the ones who are going to go in and cleanse my land that I've had given to Abraham, your ancestor. <clears throat> and the time is right. Back all the way back in Genesis 15, you can't read the Exodus and you certainly can't read the conquests without reading Genesis 15. Because that's where God originally made the promise. So always link Genesis 15 in your minds with the taking of the land. Because God promised, I'm not giving you this land because I like you. I'm not giving you this land because I'm pro-Israel. I'm giving you this land because, one, I promised it to Abraham. But more than that, because by the time you arrive at this point, the iniquity of these people, the evil of these people will have reached its full measure and the time for my judgment will be ripe. So you are going to be the means by which I judge the evils of the Canaanites, which aren't even really reported that much in Scripture. They're hinted at, but we don't know what God was doing in and among the Canaanites for those 400 years. But he was giving them century after century after century to turn from their evil. And by the time that Israel was coming out of Egypt under Moses, the seed of Abraham is being brought out is exactly the time when the judgment on the Canaanites is ready to take place. And that should, in, in some sense, that should unsettle us because yes, God does use people to judge other peoples at His command and, and without vindicating the people that He's using. Because he'll do this later to Israel themselves. He'll do this to Israel when they're in the land for century after century after century. And they do the practices of the Canaanites. They turn to the iniquity. And their iniquity reaches its full measure. And he sends them prophet after prophet after prophet until finally he says, my judgment now is going to fall on you. And the land is going to vomit you out just like it vomited out the Canaanites. And he sends the Babylonians. And they exile Israel from the same land. So God is the owner of the land. People are just His tenants. It does not belong to anyone permanently. It's on lease by God to the people that He allows to live there. And when their iniquity gets to a certain height, He will expunge them from the land. So He'll use another people to do it. And that's what He's doing in this section. He's getting ready to use Israel to judge these Canaanites that have reached their full measure. So that's the plan. But the spies that would go in, the leaders of the, the tribes, they see the enemy. They see the fortifications. They see the, the, the stature of the people there. And they're just like, we can't do it. There's no way we can do it. And so they come back and they spread what's called a bad report among the people. Verse, chapter 14, verse 1, That night, all the people of the community 
raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us up to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So now, in this language that, that, that captures the idea that it wasn't just the rabble anymore. It wasn't just the spies. This had infected the entire community. Now in the Bible, all doesn't always mean all. The language of totality is there for, for emphasis, not scientific precision. We know that all the congregation did not grumble against them. We know the names of two especially who didn't. So it's important to read that, to keep in mind, and the Bible all doesn't always mean all, but rather it's a way of saying all over the camp, the whole congregation, the people as a whole, even if there were individual exceptions. That's important for how you read the Bible, because if you don't, then you can come up with all kinds of contradictions that supposedly exist in Scripture. For instance, God will say, wipe out the Canaanites, show them no mercy, put to death everything that breathes there, everything that lives. But yet, when it's actually time to go do it, God Himself spares people that are there. He spares Rahab. He spares her family. He spares the Gibeonites. There are always exceptions when the Bible uses this language of all or this totality language. So keep that in mind. In this section, the idea is not that every single person was rebelling, but that as a whole, the people as a whole had decided, we're not going to go this route. God has called us to this. We're not doing that. It would be better if we were to die in the desert or die here in the wilderness. So we need to elect a new leader. And we're going to have a referendum. We're going to choose somebody new. And then they're going to lead us back to Egypt. So this is an explicit denial of salvation. They are literally throwing away their salvation. Why do I say that? Because salvation, remember if you were here for Exodus, that's the whole foundation of this. The Old Testament concept of salvation comes from what God did in saving His people from Egypt. Only later would salvation come to have this theological meaning of dying and going to heaven forever. In the Old Testament, the primary emphasis and the primary image of salvation was God saving His people out of Egypt, bringing them out of slavery through the waters of the Red Sea, which the prophets would call Israel's baptism. All this spiritual language in the New Testament comes from the Old Testament. Israel is embodying the life of God's people. And as a whole, so the model of salvation and the model of, of, of what we call soteriology, and, which is how you get saved, and all of that stuff in the New Testament, it has its foundations here. This is the image we should use. So what Israel was doing here was consciously and openly rejecting the salvation that God had already given them and refusing to continue to walk in it and desiring because of what lied ahead to turn back and go back into the enslavement and into the sinfulness from which God had freed them. That's massive for understanding biblical salvation. The concepts of apostasy. The questions of losing what? Can you lose your salvation? Or once saved, always saved? How does that work? The pattern is here in Israel. Were Israel saved? Yes. Was Israel living in that salvation at the moment? Yes. Would Israel continue and ultimately receive the benefits of that salvation in the future? No. 
not this generation. Because they turned away. They didn't lose their relationship with God. You don't lose your salvation. Salvation is not car keys. You can't just, whoops, I lost it. It's not, well, I sinned, I didn't mean to, and I feel awful about it, and I'm begging you, I'm repenting. That's not apostasy. Apostasy is this model. God, I know what You're calling me to. I know what You've done in my life. I get it, and I don't want it anymore. And I'm going to leave. That's apostasy. That is a very real thing in the New Testament. The folk theology idea that that's not ever going to happen and can't happen and, and you can't ever happen if you're a true believer. You can never, ever, ever turn away from God. And all this stuff that I've heard preachers that I respect in a great deal hear them preach sometimes and I just think, you haven't spent much time in the Old Testament. You haven't spent much time with the foundational image of salvation that comes from the Bible. When you even ask the question, can you lose your salvation? You're already asking the wrong question. Israel doesn't lose the Exodus event. It happened. It was real. They are literally saved. But they sure can throw it away. And they sure can go back into that thing that God called them out of. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews warns his people time after time in the book of Hebrews. He warns them exactly against doing that. And he points back, Hebrews chapter 4 points to this event as a warning for Christians in the new covenant not to do what their spiritual ancestors, the Jews in the Old Covenant, did. If it weren't a possibility, why would they even warn against it? If you couldn't make a shipwreck of your faith, why would Paul even write about that? The, th the fact is, apostasy is a real thing in Scripture. And it's something that God pleads with His people. And the apostles plead with the churches, do not do what the people here did, or you will not enter His rest. It's just as stark as can be. So be very wary when you start to hear people downplay that. Oh, well, th that really, that's not speaking about Christians. That's not speaking about true believers. Really? Do you know that? Or do you hope that? Because the text itself gives some pretty stark warnings. But the good news is, it's not, I don't know what I did and now I've lost my salvation. No, no, no. It's none of that. You know fully well what you're doing when you walk away from the Lord. And I know people that have walked away from the Lord. And they were on fire and they prayed in tongues and they were fervent in their ministry and they, all this stuff. I went to college with them. We served on leadership together. And they have rejected God now and chosen to walk in a different path because they no longer felt that following the Lord was worth it. And that's their choice. That's their decision. Israel made that decision here. They were so overcome with fear that they let fear of the world be the foundation of their rebellion. That fear of the world became what made them want to rebel. That fear of the Gentile, Canaanite, boogeymen, giants overcame everything they had experienced up until now. It overcame all of the signs, all of the miracles, everything just shrunk out of existence when they were faced with the fear that was right in front of them. And that is so easy to do. And so we're warned time after time, this is the paramount example in the New Testament of what not to do if you're a believer. Because if you're a believer, you've entered into covenant with God. This is the covenant God. This is how He acts. This is how He responds. This is how He causes people. So, Moses and Aaron, after they said, we need to choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, 
tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, tearing your clothes is a sign of severe anguish. It's a sign of mourning. When somebody dies, you tear your clothes. When something seems hopeless, you tear your clothes. When something seems serious and incredible, and you, it's, just a, it's, a, it's an expression. It's what you would do in the ancient Near East. They tore their clothes uh, and they said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. And in Hebrew, that's doubled. It's exceedingly, exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, He will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people in the land because we will swallow them up. Literally, it says they will become food for us. We will swallow them up because their protection is gone. In Hebrew, that says their shadow is gone. The image of protection in the desert was the shadow of something. When the, psalmist, when the, the writer later say, dwell in the shadow of his wings, the shadow of something, the shade of something represented its protection. And what they're saying is their protection's gone. Their shadow's gone. The Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. So Joshua and Caleb get it. Jesus and the dog. I mean, that's their names. Joshua's the name Jesus in the New Testament and Caleb's the dog. Jesus and the Gentile. They get it. They are the ones who get it. <clears throat> and they urge the people, you are about to lose the very thing that God has been preparing us for for two years now because of your fear and your disobedience. So, they don't start chastising them and calling them names. They encourage them. Look at what they're saying. They're encouraging them. They're giving them this, this pep, like we can do this. Not because we're awesome. We're not. Not because they're not scary. They are. But because God has already said we can do it and He's already promised us. And if He's promised it, it's as good as done. If we walk in that promise. God's plan is going to come true. But whether or not we are part of that plan is up to us walking along with Him. Again, divine sovereignty, human responsibility, neither is jettisoned. They're both held there in Scripture. And let that do with your theology what it will, but it's, you can't let go of either one. But, verse 10, the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. This should be a paragraph break in your Bible. I don't know, the NIV doesn't, but this is like a uh-oh moment. This is a then God showed up. The glory of the Lord. Literally, the kabod, the heaviness of God. It's His presence that's so thick it can be felt. The glory of the Lord showed up and God is not happy. This is a theophany. This is a judgment theophany. A theophany is an appearance, a manifestation appearance of God. And it happens throughout Scripture. And usually, not always, but usually, it's pretty scary. And bad news is coming right after it. So that's exactly what we read. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? How long will they refuse to believe? That word believe in is the verb aman. It's where we get amen from. And it doesn't mean believe like, oh, I know that God exists. No, believe in. When you aman, we talked about this back in Genesis when Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, Genesis 12. When you aman, you put your full weight into something. I may believe that the ladder can hold me, but I don't truly believe until I start climbing it. I, can, I believe that this chair is going to hold me up, but I don't really believe in the Amman sense until I sit in it. 
It's that kind of belief. It's a belief with your whole essence. And God's saying, how long will these people refuse to Amon, to believe in Me? In spite of all the miraculous signs I have done performed among them, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you a nation greater and stronger than they. So God shows up to Moses and Aaron and He says specifically to Moses, hey, I've had it. These people have tested my patience. Ten, he's going to say later, ten times now they've tested my patience. I'm done. I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start over with you. That would still be true to God's promise. What did He promise? The seed of Abraham would inherit the land. Moses is the seed of Abraham. God could wipe out the entire nation and still, through a single person, rebuild it all. Just like He did with Noah. Just like He's done with Abraham. He could rebuild, he can, The whole thing can become uh, Moses' descendants now. God can do that and His promise would still happen. But Moses, who has just been beat up for the last three chapters who has just been threatened with being killed by stoning by the whole congregation, that very same congregation, Moses says to the Lord, but then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people, and that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land He promised them on oath, so He slaughtered them in the desert. So Moses now appeals not to the people's worth, because there is none. He doesn't try to say, well, they're not really that guilty. Oh, they're very guilty. He appeals to God's promise and to God's glory in the sight of all the nations. Moses doesn't lose sight of the real deal. The real fact of this all is God is doing this with Israel so that the nations will see, so that Israel will be a light to those nations, so that those nations will then turn back to God. This has been the plan from Genesis chapter 12 on. This has been the plan through the whole Old Testament. What God is doing for the Israelites is not for the Israelites. It's for the world. And the Israelites are the means by which, they're the lifeline by which God is reaching out to this world. And if they mess up, then that puts the whole plan of the whole world in jeopardy. That's how Moses is understanding this. And it puts God's glory, God's reputation among the nations in jeopardy. And Moses knows the plan all along has been for God to reach the nations and to do it through Israel. It's always been the mission of God. In fact, if you want to read the best book of biblical theology ever written in the English language, pick up Christopher Wright's book, The Mission of God. It's this entire concept through and through from Genesis to Revelation, and it's absolutely brilliant. The mission of God is to proclaim His name to the Gentiles through His relationship with Israel. And when that goes off the rails, the whole purpose of the New Covenant is to get back on track and take to an even greater degree what the purpose of the Old Covenant was. Which is the very same thing. That people from every language, every tongue, every tribe, every nation will worship the one true God through His covenant people who He sends out into the world to bring them back. It's the big picture, and Moses gets it. So Moses reminds God. The audacity that Moses has to remind God. How many second-person 
do you see that? How many you, that second person, how many times do you see that in this section? Your people, your glory. They'll hear about what you did if you killed them. He's putting it all back on God. And he says, verse 17, Now, may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. This is fascinating what Moses says. He says, show your strength. Show your great power. And then how? The next line? By forgiving. He realizes the strength of God, wiping them out, sending a plague, all of that, destroying this people, that won't show the strength of God. Him forgiving the nation as a whole is far greater evidence of His strength. However, there's a conundrum. God doesn't let the guilty go unpunished. His, his love and His justice are both put forth. In the original, he's quoting God's own words to him. When God put him in the cleft of the rock back in Exodus and passed by and he called out his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, who's gracious and forgiving, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love to the thousands generation. But to those who hate him, he will visit the sin of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. It was a whole way of saying the sins of the fathers will have consequences for the children, but the faithfulness of God will dwarf that in comparison. That's that whole thousands versus third and fourth. It's a num- high number, tiny number. So Moses brings this back up and he shows God, yeah, God, I know you do punish. So I'm not saying don't punish, but show your great strength by forgiving as a whole us as a people. Don't punish us all. Don't wipe us all out. Or really them, because Moses was never in danger. Don't wipe them all out. Punish the guilty Do the justice that you have to do, but keep your promise and your faithfulness just as you proclaimed yourself to. And so verse 20, the Lord replied, I'll forgive them, or I have forgiven them, just as you asked. Or literally it says, I think, according to your word, which is powerful. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me these ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit, the only person he's ever other, other person in this book he's called my servant is Moses. This is very strong affirmation of Caleb. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit, in other words, not a spirit of rebellion, but a spirit of faithfulness, and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. We'll pick back up next week because we're out of time. But God's judgment shows itself, next week we'll see, perfectly fitting. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now remember, these weren't just people who were grumbling. These were people who had determined we are going to take rocks and crush Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua to death with them. And then we're going to go back to the people that God brought us out from slavery. That is how severe. That is iniquity. 
There are three words for sin in Hebrew. There's hachta, which just means kind of falling short or missing it or just getting it wrong. There's pesha, which is like transgressing, kind of going around the rules, getting around what God said. And then there's avon, which is iniquity, which is basically my professor in seminary, he said the best way to think of it is here's God's will. Hata, you're kind of falling short of it or just missing it. Peshat, you're kind of going around it or trying to skirt it somehow. Avon, you're saying, I'm going to run right through into evil because I do not care. Iniquity. That's what iniquity is. It's uncaring evil. That's what they were guilty of. And so God punishes their iniquity. But He also forgives as a whole the people. So how does that work? What does that look like? We'll see next week what happens, but we are out of time. So get some seconds if you want them. Otherwise, have a great week and we'll see you next week.